Hey everyone, it is Ashley and Danny, and I just totally changed up our way of introducing ourselves for the past like four or five seasons. But this is an episode of History Unloaded, and uh, <laughs> we are. Nope, did he shave his head? Do I have to start again? <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Okay, so uh, in this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, uh, I actually put my name first for once. Maybe I'm feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. You can go with it. We just, it's weird that we never have before. I know, right? Um, But in this episode, we are following up to a rather long episode that we did last week, um, which was kind of the first half of gun laws uh, in Europe and early America up through the late 19th century. And, you know, certainly I'm sure we missed a lot of stuff. Um, Like somebody mentioned uh, the Sullivan Act, which is actually a pretty important one um, that we didn't mention, but. Yeah, it got us there. No, not whatever. That's, yep. Uh, he did get us there on that one. But um, but yeah, so I mean, but the point of last week was to kind of showcase that the, the origins of these laws are really, you know, very much rooted in the regulation of firearms from people. You know, whether it's a race, whether it's, you know, a, cl- a social class, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, regulating whether it's an outright ban of a firearm or, you know, just a regulation in general that says don't sell to Native Americans, which is rather bold, I still think. Um, but like it was, what, Danny, you look like you're going to say something. Well, like certainly in hindsight, you know, I'm sure back then they were like, yeah, this just makes sense. But like in hindsight, like, oh, that, that's a rough one, guys. Like, but is it is it better or worse that they just said what they meant rather than when laws some laws get passed today where it's clearly an undertone but they don't say it? Well, yeah, I, and I think we touched on that a little bit. And I'm by all means, I am not endorsing race based gun control, but there is a certain appeal in just how bla- like they stated what they were doing. It's like we don't like the appeal is in how they said it, not what Spoken they were doing. Like a true Southerner, Danny. Smoking like a true Southerner, Danny. <laughs> but they just, you know, today it's all like, it's guarded language that is trying to accomplish this, the same thing. Like, yeah. we're going to do this thing, but we're not going to, we're bury it way deep in the bottom of this bill and you're going to have to figure it out. Then it's just like, we really hate minorities. Let's not give them guns. Yeah. Which is awful. Or, but they just or, said it. Um, or, you know, and, and I hate throwing this around because it's such a, like, toxic term, I feel like, just because I feel like the people who throw the word around are also incredibly that word, which is the word privileged. Um, you know, so I, I, I get the concept of privilege and I don't just, I, I agree with it. However, everyone who yells at me and other people about privilege tend to be the most privileged. So I'm just saying, but the other thing that I think comes into play, especially in the 20th century, um, into the 21st century with modern laws is a concept of privilege because people who are passing the laws, like when New Jersey tried to change that, that handgun statute where you had, they were going to up the license price to I think a hundred dollars a license. Like that is whether you, you know, like the term or not, that's straight up privilege, not acknowledging and recognizing that, you know, there are people who can't afford that. You know, if you sit there and you go, Oh, that's nothing. Then you're privileged. And if you sit there and go, well, my dog's barking. Marley. But, but, you know, so if you scoff that a hundred dollars is, you know, not a lot of money, then that's privilege. And then if you are like, well, I recognize that it's a lot of money, then you're implying then that a certain class of people shouldn't have them. 
And so well, either way, and, it's kind of a crazy quagmire. You know, which yeah. one do you want to be? Which one do you want to be? Privileged yeah. and ignorant or intentionally trying to keep guns out of a certain class of individual? The wokest way I know of putting it is like that hundred things less significant than that hundred dollar fee have been touted as doing air quotes again that our listeners can't see anti-poverty bias. Yeah. Camila, you look like you have something to say. She's shaking her head. She's like, uh, nope, nope. I have thoughts. She's not getting into it. Anyway, but that that really leads into this conversation because last week we talked about the fact that a lot of these laws, and, and I'm not saying, you know, just for the record, because we are academics and so, you know, we don't really take a side on a lot of this, but, um, you know, this is not a, a statement on whether or not the law worked was effective. That's not really what we do. Um, but it's a look at the kind of origins and historical context behind what drove those laws. Um, you know, so we're not saying that like, you know, you can't do those things, but you have to be mindful of why you're doing them, you know, and who it affects and does it negatively affect the people that, uh, maybe need it the most. And so now that we get into the 20th century, we do start getting into the world of, I'm not going to say it's not for you, but I'm going to make sure that the law is written. So it's not for you. Right. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. And I mean, yes, we are trying to approach this academically, but I think we've given it away that we do have an opinion on the matter. We have an opinion the on the matter. Time. Yes, of course. But at the same time, you know, it's right. it's not to say that there aren't other ideas that went around and, right. you know, that might have made more sense, but this is what it comes out to be in the end. Um, so real quick run, rundown of what's going on in 20th century America and why this kind of shifts and becomes a much different, eh, different yet the same conversation. So we were getting into kind of Native American rights, the South, the West, you know, in, in the last episode as we were kind of coming into the 19th century. As you also hit the 19th century, not only are you dealing with a lot of like those kind of conversations in the South trying to repair itself and, you know, the North trying to figure out, you know, the kind of labor laws and everything, you start getting really what we could consider modern America. Um, the late 19th century hits, you start getting a much more modern consumer era. Um, and then by the 20th century, uh, especially with the acknowledgement of like germ theory and like understanding like medicine in a different way, you could say, I always had a, I had a history professor in college that I always, has always lived with me. And she said, everybody says they want to go back in time, but nobody thinks about the fact that they never could survive. Um, you know, let alone the smell, um, in, in the colonial times because baths weren't that popular. Um, but they, you know, this professor said, you know, when you get to the progressive era, the gilded era, progressive era in the 20th century is the first time if you today went back, you could probably survive because of, you know, quote unquote, the, you know, although we don't have to get in the train wreck of modern medicine, but <clears throat> back then, but it is starting to recognize a lot of the theories that we know today. Um, you know, we've got uh, items that you can just buy on the shelves. So it is starting to become an, an America and a world that, you know, while you may not like to live in, you could live in. And so we that's where I think and why we made the 
pivot point for this week's episode because it does change into a modern era by the time you hit the 20th century. Other things that are going on during this time, uh, famously, infamously, I guess, William McKinley is assassinated, um, and the newspapers report um, concerns of anarchy. Uh, there's mass migration into cities. Uh, you start getting the urban environments that we have today, and uh, with mass migration into cities, you get all these people piled on top of each other, so while they might not need... Um, a gun for subsistence hunting, like they, you know, needed out west or in the early colonies. You know, there's so there's not a quote unquote um, immediate or original need for the firearm that they had in the 19th century in these urban environments. And then, of course, you know, you start getting increased crime rates when you put people together like that, and so you get crime, and then you get the United States government really starting to go, okay, so like we've let the states handle this like a lot. You know, is it time for federal regulatory bureau? Um, and that becomes, and actually it starts with prostitution, um, where they want to track uh, crime across state lines. Because basically the U.S. government at that point was not able to, like, trace a criminal when they cross state lines. And especially when you start getting the, you know, the organized criminals of the, you know, early part of the 20th century, you know, they want something for better or for worse, to regulate across state lines. And so you start getting what becomes the FBI, um, and you'll start to see these more, these national laws come into play um, a lot more than before. Like last week was really hard because it was like, and this state said this, and this state said this, and this state, you know, because there's so many, and, and it still happens today. We're still, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff at the state levels, which gets really confusing a lot of the times. Um, you know, it's good and bad all the same, right? Because it's good because states need different things um, depending on what kind of like culture you have but then also uh, it gets confusing if you're a gun owner and you're trying to travel across the country with your firearms and you have to look up the laws of every state you're in city you're going to go into but that's kind of the root of why we start getting these federal regulatory agencies is because of the fact that they are trying to track criminals across state lines uh, which ultimately turns into should we just like should we just get into it danny should we just jump right there well, I was going to, if you weren't going to jump to it, I was going to jump to Prohibition. But. Oh, tell us about Prohibition, Danny. Mr. Well, Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> well, wasn't that a time? Wasn't um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it, this podcast is us just like weirdly rambling about yeah. society in general. Yeah, this one has changed from a guns podcast to just Ashley and Danny's thoughts on society. Um <laughs> <clears throat> so prohibition era, obviously, as Ashley was talking about, there's that trend, that urbanization trend. Um, you know, it starts in the late 1800s, really identified with the turn of the century. And there's all sorts of things that crop up because of that. I think it's that whole regulatory push is then sort of emboldened isn't the right word, but I can't think of the right word right now. Um, but it, 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 there's a... Empowered? There's Empowered, sure, we'll go with it. But when prohibition hits in the 19 teens, then they really have to step up. Um, you know, if you're going to ban alcohol sales, you need a lot more laws and you need a lot more manpower to do it. So that increases, um, you know, that increases the amount of agents in the field um, through the Treasury Department at the time. And it increases the number of rules that local, you know, lo local uh, jurisdictions are placing the federal rules around alcohol. And of course, 
that incentivizes the black market for alcohol, which also creates sort of this recipe for violence. And so the very first big one that everybody talks about when you're talking about federal law for firearms that's still in effect today is the National Firearms Act of 1934. And of course, it's passed after prohibition ends, but it's often... Keep talking, Danny. I'll be right back. Okay. So it's passed after prohibition ends, but it is it is always cited as being in response to the violence, both perceived and real violence that happened in the prohibition era. So people think of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. They think of, you know, bootleggers running moonshine and getting into shootouts, both with each other and with law enforcement. And all this sort of builds up, you know, the a couple hot points become, you know, sh the Chicago area and all the um, sort of gangsters associated with that. Um, you know, the Al Capones and those people, they all become associated with this image of, you know, prohibition violence. And so the National Firearms Act comes around ostensibly in response to that, um, although it is sometimes even specifically cited as being in response to the St. Valentine's Day massacre, which happened in 1929. Uh, but the act is passed in 1934 and it required registration um, for the first time of, at, at least at the federal level, of specific firearms. And originally it was going to require registration of handguns and short barrel rifles and shotguns and silencers and um, machine guns. And interestingly enough, nobody can really see why they put silencers on it. It seems like at least machine guns and the short barreled stuff and handguns that were like seen as guns associated with this violence. The silencers seems to have come from, at least from my understanding, from this earlier World War One era fear of like assassinations by silencer. Like Woodrow Wilson, I think specifically like wrote something about, he was worried about like communist anarchists, like, you know, stirring up trouble with, like taking people out with, silencers and i don't think there's any documented cases of that ever happening or even a plot to make that happen um, but it seems like this, just a weirdo man yeah it seems like this generic fear of these things kept on um through the 20s and then they're like oh yeah let's not forget those um because silencers weren't you know the maximum silencers available at the time those aren't even one of those things that features in the popular image of like a gun that a gangster would carry yeah um Maybe but anyways the, na the national firearms largely in response to that um through, I think the NRA claims this one. Uh, they claim that because of lobbying efforts of that organization's that pistols were removed from, yeah. or handguns were removed but They did from. also support it. Right, but there was also this big caveat yeah. that there was support for it. So that's the first big one in response yeah. to this early 20th century and especially prohibition, like I said, both perceived and real violence. Yeah. And um, sorry, I was running around because I was looking for my repeal the NFA hat and I think my husband took it because I saw it and then it's gone, but we're in the process of moving. So I thought it'd be funny, but I don't have it anymore. It was um, a lot of effort for a bit that didn't pan out. I know, I'm really disappointed. That's why I was gone for a little bit longer. So I don't know what you just said, Danny. And so I have no, if Danny said something completely inaccurate, it's not my fault. I was looking for a hat. I, it's I was I was off trying to fight the and get the NFA repealed. On Do your part to fight the NFA, but I was. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So that's the first real big one, and then there's subsequent cases like 
right after, which we were just talking about before this podcast hit, which Miller, which do you want to talk right. about that one? Cause you actually, yeah, I'll mention it. Yeah. So this one is, this one's a bit more obscure, but probably if you're into a podcast like ours, I imagine you might know of this one. Um, United States versus Miller in 1939 was a Supreme court case. Um, and it was a challenge to the NFA or the national firearms act. And it was arguing essentially that uh, the basically that these guns were protected under the second amendment. And then the court sort of ruled that because guns like short barreled shotguns didn't really have, um, didn't have a, a use for militia purposes, quote unquote, uh, that these were then not protected by the second amendment. So on the one hand, then you have ever since that Miller case, you have people arguing sort of pro gun control side that we'll see th there are some limits. There can be regulation that was upheld at the Supreme court level. And then since then you also have people arguing that we'll see it protects any gun that is useful for a militia so our current military armaments are, you know, full auto select fire, you know, essentially M4s and M16s, stuff like that. So like both sides kind of see this thing as a victory, even though it's it's pretty obscure now and both sides continue to cite it as far as I know. Uh, also, it is interesting, I think. Oh, are you going to say the thing about the fact that it didn't exist, like the gun that they described didn't exist? Oh, no, I was, wasn't going to get in that. I'll let you get into that one. But no, what no, I was no, gonna no say, I'm good. Because I, I realized we skipped over two before. I pulled up our timeline. From, oh, you know, and that two, was smart. Yeah, two from, you know, prior to Miller that we should make a point to mention is obviously 1937. And although we're not doing something, which I think we really should do one on the hunting conservation law because it's really fascinating. But uh, Pittman-Robertson's Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act is 1937, requiring hunters to pay a tax that's still collected today on guns and ammunition to contribute to the study of wildlife, biology, and conservation. And then um, one that we almost never talk about, which is 1938, the Federal Firearms Act requires that gun manufacturers, importers, and persons in the business of selling firearms have a federal firearms license. So, right. so you got NFA 1934, two. by 38, you've got federal firearms licenses, and then 39, you've got Miller, and then 42, the alcohol tax unit, which becomes the ATF, is um, receives power to enforce firearms laws. So yeah, those all are all. Those are, like, yeah, that's good to mention. I'm glad you brought those in. The point I was going to make is that well, while the Supreme Court is arguing like what guns are useful for a militia, at the time, I think the current, like this current issue rifle, was an M1 grand at that point although probably most soldiers were still hadn't gotten one yet so they probably still had 1903s and the argument was for was specifically boiled down to like an a shotgun with an 18 inch barrel that didn't have a militia use when just like 15 or 20 years before the u.s army had bought a ton of 20 inch barrel shotguns like and specifically you know, they specifically ordered these, everybody calls them trench guns. A few of them made it to the trenches. Most of them are used for like guard duty for like second line troops. Um, so yeah, like just a couple decades before, like the government had used a bunch of relatively short barreled shotguns and then they turn around and we're like, all right, 20 inches is fine for militia use, I guess, but <laughs> 18 is too short. 
that seems weird to me. That's just Isn't an observation. That, oh, that's so interesting. And then uh, just as kind of a modern day you know, topic of conversation with the, the concept of like the length of the gun to barrel length. Um, I wasn't in the room because I was an expert, but it was open to the public. So I was filled in on it later. But the case that I'm working on, Miller v. Becerra, there was a whole conversation about, you know, the length of a gun fitting in like a backpack and the fact that with ARs, you could just kind of like very quickly disassemble it and fit it. And mm -hmm. so it was, it's, it's that, that length thing is a really interesting, that's, that can be taken so many ways, Danny. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. But it's also true, if you think, about, like, if you think uh, about the trench guns from World War II, they existed in takedown versions. So the government had also ordered 20-inch barrel shotguns that you could pull the barrel off very easily. And like, I mean, if you're talking about concealability, like those guns would have been concealable. They were solid frames and takedowns. But it's also really cool that we just realized uh, this last year that we, as a... As, since we are in the business of material culture, we have a firearm that is a Winchester with a 15 inch barrel. It's a Winchester 94 and sold in, I wanna say 32, like 1931 or 32. And we have the original 1934 dated NFA form one for that gun. Um, and it was to a guy in Arizona. And at the time, and a ranch the, that still exists. <laughs> yeah, the ranch still exists. Um, it appears the guy was like some official with like what was the pre predecessor to the FAA, and uh, so he probably paid somewhere around twenty dollars for the gun, and then he paid two hundred dollars to register it because the barrel was three inches under the limit. And that's the other thing is the limit has changed since then. So we'll get into that in a minute. But um, that's a cool piece in the collection. Um, and then I was, while you were talking, Danny, I was pulling up, um, because I was curious, I hadn't looked at it, uh, in a while because we're getting, we're, we're getting to that time where we get to the uncomfortable conversation of the Mulford Act. Um, <laughs> is there Yeah, we just like zoning in on the thirties and forties cause that's easier to discuss. Well, yeah. The thirties and forties. And then, you know, World War II happens and, you know, Korea. So like it's, there's stuff, but it's not as, as hot. It's not in the national like conscience the way yeah. it was in the early thirties and the way it would be later. Like that yeah, takes over and too. it's. Yeah. So I, what I wanted to know, and that's why I just looked up. So um, on our timeline, 1967, the Mulford act um, and anyone that's listening that knows guns knows that this is like, this is one of the gun world's black eyes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Black eyes. Keep moving. <laughs> um, but it is. I mean, it, it really is a rough time, especially, you know, like, you know, there's lots of people who love President Reagan, but this was, you know, during his time as California governor. Um, in 1967, California passes the Mulford Act restricting the carry of loaded firearms in public as a response to the Black Panthers openly carrying firearms as a form of protest. Um, so this this one gets a little dicey. Um, so the NRA also supported this, and that's where I say that it's kind of a cloudy, like, uh, a cloudy time for the gun world of like having the dialogue of, you know, are we really, if you are a part of the gun world and you want firearms, it, you know, do you really mean for all, or are we going to regress back to the 19th century where we, you know, really mean like mm, for us, <laughs> but not right. And so and what course, I, Oh, sorry, go ahead. And then I'll oh, say, what I was going to say, like, I think Reagan at one point used like, he used a quote that was something to the effect of 
you know, honest people don't need to be worried about this. And like the honest people sounds a lot like a euphemism there. And it's really similar to the language like that we're talking about in the modern debate of like government surveillance of its own citizens of like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, you should be fine about this. And like, that's not an argument that I personally buy. Um, and I think using that sort of like yeah. using that language for this act was also, especially in hindsight, um, yeah. it's hard the to quote the Mulford Act would work no hardship on uh, on the honest citizens. Ah, um, that's crazy. Um, anyway, so what I wanted to pull up was the actual penal code that went into law to see if it did say anything about race, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, so many of the early laws really did. And we talked about the fact that, like, in the 20th century, it's almost like it's, sometimes it's still about race and economic class, but they don't mm -hmm. say it anymore. Um, so the actual wording, and, and it's long, so I'm just going to read the two or a couple of the provisions. Um, uh, a person is guilty of carrying a loaded firearm when the person carries a loaded firearm on the person or in a vehicle while in any public place or, in, or on any public street in an incorporated city or in any public place or on any public street in a prohibited area of unincorporated territory. In order to determine whether or not a firearm is loaded for the purpose of enforcing this section, peace officers are authorized. That sounds like that would be a terrible idea. Peace officers are, I don't envy the peace officers. Um, peace officers are authorized to examine any firearm carried by anyone on the person or in a vehicle while in any public place or on any public street in an incorporated city or prohibited area of an unincorporated territory. Refusal to allow a peace officer to inspect a firearm pursuant to this section constitutes probable cause for arrest for, ooh, for violation of this section. Um, and then it goes into the punishable laws. So it doesn't right. say anything about that, but you know, what's going on if you look contextually, what's going on around that time was uh, the black Panthers basically policing their own neighborhoods and peacefully protesting open carry um, in California. And so, yeah. yeah. Did you have something? Yeah. And there's that photo of the, the black Panther protest. And like, I think one of the guys that's up front, he has either an M one carbine or like a number five Enfield. It's like the so-called jungle carbine. It's a, like, it's a pretty cool gun, like respect to that guy for the gun he chose to protest with. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I mean, we have to, if we're going to curate this stuff, right. We have to have an opinion on the actual gun yeah. in the photo. Of course. Um, well, and there's a couple of different ones. When we were trying to search, like when we were doing image search for the new museum, like a lot of the images I think that often get attributed to like the Mulford Act is actually another Black Panther peaceful protest in another city. Um, so there's a couple of, there's a handful of different ones. Like we actually like had to like look at all the captions very closely because it's what, while the law is infamous in the state of California, um, it was going on around the country elsewhere. Right. Is this a time to... Bring up the <laughs> Well, no, I was going to talk about like, what do we, where do we put something like the Battle of Athens, Tennessee on this, where it's not directly gun related, but it's like a bunch of vets don't like their local sheriff um, and think there's some unethical things going on. So they take up arms to, you know, that one doesn't get a response because I think they, they managed to oust him. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But but it is like it is an armed protest um, that doesn't get a response because it's rural white Tennesseans. And Just them Southerners being Southerners. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't get the news. It doesn't get the attention. Whereas this one in California, there's a, you know, a protest on the Capitol grounds gets attention. And it's, you know, by the time that, by that point, there's much more widespread TV coverage of events like this. And that drums up um, a lot of, 
people were all of a sudden sort of, oh, I don't like people protesting armed. And there's another, I want to tie it into something else here in a second, but I will say it's really, really similar to the response that we're seeing and the, the back and forth we're seeing over things like uh, the Richmond protest that was um, last year or the year before. It all runs together at this point. Um, everything is 2020. Just everything, everything that happened before that happened is now 2020. <laughs> um, it, it's really similar to that. You know, that there was this, the Malford Act happens because of armed protesting. And it's like a, it's sort of a flashpoint there. And then it gets that sort of armed protest idea sort of dies down for a little bit. And like here in the last decade, I think it's, it's drummed back up. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's important to note that at the time, uh, you know, we have this idea of like constitutional carry states now, you know, we're sort of on this, this like linear path where like, all right, there was no restriction, then there's the NFA. And I think this is what we were talking about in last podcast, where it seems like it's, you know, this progress towards more restrictive. Um, and so we see all these, these passages of these laws. But it's interesting to note at the time the Malford Act was passed, carry concealed or open was much, much more restricted at the state level than it is now. That is one area where it's actually sort of switched. Yeah. And another thing I to try to say switched and swapped and did swipped. Swipped. Oh, Danny's making up words again. Oh, it's like Back the old times. Um, so the other thing that I think is important to note in the 20th century is while there are some like regulations historically, like with the wheel lock and then the army Navy laws, uh, for like the first Saturday night special, um, you know, there are some of those that exist prior to the 20th century, but the 20th century becomes absolutely laser focused for a lot of these laws on the firearms themselves. You know, the regular, not right. the regulation of people, not the regulation. I mean, by proxy, you know, does that, but not the regulation of people, not by the regulation of, you know, necessarily carry or militia rights. It becomes like really, really nationally laser focused on the gun itself and how to regulate the gun itself. Um, and that, you know, while it happens a little bit before, it's relatively new concept in history is like, you know, instead of regulating XYZ, we're now going to try to come up with what guns are and are not acceptable. Um, which I think is an interesting shift. And I, I, we should totally talk to like a legislative scholar to see like what that, right. why that becomes more modern, a modern concept of the regulation, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It does like in, in those laws we were reading from the last episode, it's like, uh, don't carry a gun or a dagger or a weapon or whatever. Just <laughs> yeah. you don't carry it. And then it's like, now it's, this gun is restricted and it's because of this feature this, this on this, this part. Length. Yeah. Yeah. It's called this name. And I mean, and now we're to the point where we're like debating, like, you know, a button, like, you know, like California's infamous the handgun roster well, or the handgun, yeah, the handgun roster, roster. Yeah. The, the tip of the firing pin. Like all these things are like under scrutiny and it gets so ridiculous at one point, I'm going to bring this one up. <laughs> the ATF issues a letter about, tying a shoelace to enable bump fire and like in that instance it would be a machine gun and then everybody's like oh shoelace is a machine gun look how crazy atf is um and yeah, then they did like, it again it gets, but it yeah. does it's it's because of that laser focus on and i think i'm oh, sorry go ahead yeah. uh, the other thing and i will interject a personal opinion here based on 
uh, it's, I know Ashley's giving a real solid personal opinion and I'm saying it's a personal opinion based on the historical, the historical context behind it. I think that switching in the 20th century to being more focused on the firearm has made it far more complicated and far less effective because it's like the handgun roster, you know, you have to pay to be on the roster and then the testing. And then, you know, it's like, you know, trying to declare it's a slippery slope of trying to declare what is and is not working. And then you declare it and then people find ways around it because it really wasn't, you know, it was only banning like a weird feature from a lack of knowledge. And then, you know, okay, so now we're going to ban this. And it just kind of, it feels like they thought the gun was the way to go. And it feels like it's just become like since NFA, like such a weird like oh and then this thing oh and then this thing oh and then this thing because when you deal with the object as law like the artifact is being the focus of the law and not you know use and, and operation it just becomes a like a never-ending laundry list of tacking things on but we should keep going because we've been talking for a really long time and Camila literally just looked at her watch um so we get up to the gun control act of 1968 Because she's bored. And Ashley gave a personal opinion. <laughs> so she's like, we're not here. Wrap it up. Ashley's going cuckoo. Like, um, So then we we do hit the Gun Control Act of 1968, uh, which regulates interstate commerce. And, and these are such blanket statements. I mean, they do a lot more than that. Um, quickly, um, like a decade, within a decade, handguns are banned in Washington, D.C., which has been overturned um, under Heller. And then, um, oh, I didn't. I, I almost said I didn't know this, but I wrote this timeline in 1972. That's when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is actually given its name. Did you know that, Danny? Did you did you read this thing I wrote? <laughs> I did not. Um, but then we do start getting in as we get into the um, beyond the Gun Control Act. When we get into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, you do start seeing um, restrictions on carry because there is, like you said like the laws become a lot more open to carry in different circumstances. So now the federal government tries to do blanket bans on areas. So the gun free school zones act is 1990, for example, restricting gun possession near school zones. Um, do we want to talk firearms owners and protection act? Because that's, that's a good one for yeah, talking about like, there's like the good for the gun world and the, and then they tack the Hughes amendment on. So why don't yeah, you go? we got, so we got to deal with this one. And so, so we got to, I'll try to do this as briefly as I can, but there's the gun control act and the Malford act in the sixties. And really the, you know, the civil unrest that we see in the sixties and seventies, um, I think is, you know, sort of like that prohibition era co contributes to some of the firearms law. I think that civil unrest also contributes to added towards to, you know, open protest and, and firearms. Um, but there's those laws passed. Of course, there's several high profile assassinations. And all that leads up to an increase in the sort of, not really an increase in the jurisdiction, but an increase in the enforcement from the ATF side. And the ATF gets pretty aggressive in regulating FFLs, especially, and um, collector FFLs. Uh, so the, you know, the curio and relic stuff that's been established, um, people have, there's those different grades, there's the the dealer, the pawn shop, the collector, all that stuff. Um, and so ATF tries to go after people that are maybe just collecting, 
of you know firearms and saying i'm buying i'm selling i'm trading you know i'm doing this but it's always to enhance my collection but the atf sees a couple sales a year and they're like you're in the business of we're going to go after you because you don't have an ffl and then we're going to try to prosecute you and there's this interstate travel stuff so they go after that and it really is seen by a lot of firearms owner as just outright harassment for people that are just trying to abide by the law and you know enjoy their hobby and so there's a push to get some explicit protections for firearms owners into national law, which results in the Firearms Owners Protection Act of 1986. And in that passage, you know, this one was a supported by the NRA, I think with positive intent of, look, these gun owners are being harassed. There's a real problem here. Let's get this thing passed. Let's get this thing passed. And they were, were willing to accept a really, they're willing to do almost anything to get it passed. And I think the opposition recognized that. And so they tacked on what maybe they thought would be a poison pill in the Hughes Amendment to the Firearms Owner Protection Act, which closed the registry for machine guns. Yeah. Was and that a good summation of everything? I, I, I think it was. Um, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of really important uh, I mean, the poison pill is really interesting. If you're not familiar with what a poison pill is, um, it's very, very common in politics where, you know, you have a whole law that makes a hell of a lot of sense and gets bipartisan support or gets uh, like a lot of support. And then the poison pill is um, something that's placed into that law that people are going to like vehemently disagree with. Some people are going to very strongly disagree with um, that can basically... Uh, but they try to sneak it in like they were able to do on the Hughes Amendment. Um, they're able to sneak it in at the 11th hour or whenever, um, and it either gets passed or it basically trounces the entire law. And one of the things that's modern day where this comes up um, is the red flag laws um, and the, the the new DACA, the uh, domestic, or I think I pronounce that correctly, the domestic violence law that they're trying to create um, for women um, to be protected uh, I think that I don't, there's, I don't think it's DACA, uh, but it's, it's a, it's one of those policies where like I talked to a lot of women who have been affected by domestic violence who are, are firearms owners. And the problem with that law is it would get bipartisan support had it not been that red flag laws will put it as a poison pill. Um, because a lot of women, you can take it, you know, there's arguments to both sides, but a lot of women who do own firearms recognize that that could affect them negatively. Um, mm -hmm. You know where red flag laws are meant to be positive. It could it could actually be turned on them because people aren't good people um, to not, to be disarmed in the time that they need it the most. And so the poison pills pop up. And and the reason I wanted to point that out was because the there are a lot of really strong emotions on these laws on both sides of the argument. And one thing that I've learned as not, as not an expert necessarily on the laws in and of themselves, uh, but as someone who is you know quote unquote an expert in you know, historic firearms and, and the context behind those firearms uh, is that these things are incredibly complicated. And I know that we, you know, there's a lot of people with a no compromise attitude today, but sometimes that's just not reality, you know, to live in the real world. And so when you do see like different organizations supporting something that 20 years later, maybe they wouldn't have wanted to, you know, we don't know all of the circumstances that go into them. Um, and this is really a blanket statement for all of the sides of the argument. And I think it's important for people to recognize how complicated it is and how hard it is for even us who study it every single day of our lives to get a full grasp on it. And these poison pills are one of many things that occur in, you know, behind closed doors 
in these conversations of things that we'll never quite understand and we'll never know all of the truth. That yeah, to conspiracy theory, or <laughs> we'll never so. know the truth. The X Files, the truth is They're out all, there. They're all ratchet up to conspiracy. No, um, the the thing I'll say about it is, I think in hindsight we can focus on, oh, you know, they just banned machine guns and they weren't using crime and all this stuff. And I think we forget of the actual near harassment level stuff that was taking place that was perceived and you know, not just perceived, but uh, that was going on that made the FOPA uh, legislation such a big deal. I keep forgetting that the acronym is FOPA. And I just like, every time you say it, it just makes me so... so I just, it just threw me off when I said it. Cause I was like, oh, that sounds awful to say. Why did I say the whole FOPA. name? Um, but with that legislation, there was a real issue that had to be addressed that was seen as so important that we have to get this through, even if there is this bad thing. And people at the time, in hindsight, we really, really care about machine guns. At the time, there wasn't that same culture around it. Yeah. Um, and this is looking, you know, we're oftentimes we're ascribing, even, you know, we talk about this in like long window of the past, like we are ascribing our present to self to the past, but it's true for even 30 years ago, 40 years ago you know, taking our attitude today towards machine guns as a, you know, a pro gun person and like putting it in that 1986 seat, you know, there's just not the same, you know, there's not the same appreciation for machine guns, the same desire to keep them, you know, available. So I I get, I think I'm trying to say that I, I understand the trade they made at least to a degree. And I say that as someone that really doesn't like the Hughes Amendment because of what it did to museums yeah. and my personal aspirations to own like a legit MP5 from Die Hard. Well, and I guess we should say, but real quick, it was VAWA, sorry. I said DACA because I was thinking domestic oh. violence. VAWA, Violence Against Women Act. Um, also, why is it all acts are like FOPA, VAWA? <laughs> like it's either GCA, NFA, or like a weird like, like nonsense word, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that we make out of these very serious laws. Um, the other thing that the Hughes Amendment did, did you bring up the fact that it created a finite market of machine guns in the United States, thus uh, massively increased? <laughs> I just mentioned volume? that it closed, you know, it made, I just talked about the yeah. no new machine guns. So I didn't uh, really talk about the actual yeah. impact. Unintended consequence is that now machine guns are only owned by people who can buy, spend tens of thousands of dollars on them. Um, and the $200 tax stamp, which at that point is nothing if you can afford a $50,000 machine. Right. But and you know, the one thing is that- thing of an unintended, unintended consequence of, um, and, and, and I think it's fair to say that uh, museums are just a general unintended consequence of all these laws. Yeah, because um, nobody really thinks about us. I, and I think too, it gets back to the point that we sort of touched on, but never enumerated earlier, is that that $200 fee has not changed since the NFA was enacted. And so a $200 fee, and you know, I said it was on probably a $20 gun for the one in our collection, but some of those $200 fees were on things that were even cheaper. The silencers were cheaper. Um, I'm sure some of those shotguns were cheaper. Uh, so in today's term, you know, if you take the, if, let's say the gun cost a thousand dollars today, you're talking about, you know, 10 to one cost difference. You'd be talking about an equivalent fee of something like $10,000. I think the actual like inflation value is somewhere around three grand, but you know, if you're talking about, you know, 10 to one, it's more like, you know, 10 or 12 grand. 
Yeah. And, and that also is important that we never like changed the tax stamp value, which $200 in 1934 is like crazy amount of money. And it's still a lot of money today for a lot of people. Um, but also that tax stamp plus the finite market eliminates a whole class of people from being able to buy that stuff anyways. Um, and I think in hindsight, we lose how onerous that $200 was meant to be. You know, in our $200 isn't as big of a deal now, but back then it's like, oh yeah, this is definitely designed to keep people from getting these like in a very serious and exclusionary way. Yeah. So Danny, I think that I just realized that we're going to have to do part three because we've been talking for a long time. People are probably tired of hearing about us and we haven't even touched on assault weapons bans and the Brady right. handgun stuff. So we did, and we did the, part one as up to the 1900s we did part two as up to 1986 and then i guess part three will be 86 to now yeah because i think there's a lot to unpack in terms of the arguments historic the the presentist arguments made on the laws that are being passed today without a lens of the historical past i think that's a very important conversation um so we will do part three of this after two holiday specials because <laughs> I don't want to talk I think about everybody it. needs a break. Everybody needs a break from this. So we'll do part three and we'll talk about presentism, since you already brought it up, presentism in, in gun laws and recognizing the historical past and uh, whether or not that matters. I think it does, but... I think it does too. Yeah. So we will be an echo chamber unto ourselves. Um, part three. Part three, echo chambers and presentism. Woo! And some postmodernism throw in there, thrown in there. Um, oh boy. Oh, yeah. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this uh, dissertation on gun laws of the 20th century. Uh, we will continue with the more modern laws after the holidays. And so next week, enjoy a little Christmas special, which I think is on Christmas. Is Christmas Friday, Camila? Yes. So it'll be on Christmas. It'll be about Christmas advertisements, so a little bit lighter of a topic, I hope. Although you did text me that we do have a Christmas present gun that was blown up, so who knows. Um, and then the next the next one for the New Year's will be uh, 2020 uh, year in review and the re-airing of our Apocalypse Meow podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.